And I said, I, I have no quality of life. And he said, well, it's better than being bombed or shot at. Wow. Yeah. So you just got sent home with at least you haven't been bombed or shot at. I got sent home with Prozac. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That old chestnut. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I was cuckoo bananas because I had a baby and a vagina. Yeah. 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 You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Hello, listeners. Before we get into the interview with the incredible Laura Gordon, I just wanted to let you know something. I did not realize when I referenced Ross Douthat several times in the interview with Laura that Ross Douthat has been publicly advocating for the overturn of Roe versus Wade for years. I found that out after the decision came down and I opened the New York Times and saw an op-ed piece that Ross Douthat wrote celebrating the decision. And I just wanted to make it clear that while I do respect Ross Douthat's work on Lyme disease, and I do think that he has helped move forward some really important discussion and information about Lyme disease, I absolutely a hundred percent do not agree with him on his stance around abortion rights. I'm actually pretty devastated by the Dobbs decision and I'm staunchly pro-choice. All right, well, enjoy this interview. Our episode is just a little bit longer than we normally run. We usually shoot for about an hour, but I really think it's worth it. This is a this is a really inspiring interview and Laura Gordon is truly a badass. So, enjoy. Our guest today is Laura Gordon. Laura hails from Indianapolis, Indiana, where she still lives with her sweet and witty 13-year-old son Isaac. Laura is a painter whose career has evolved from decorative painting to becoming a self-supporting painter of original works on canvas. You can see some of Laura's paintings on my website, maribyrose.com, under the post for this episode. Laura has also raised an incredible young woman, Cora, who is now 21 and attending college at Indiana University. She has done all of this while grappling with a debilitating chronic illness that began as Lyme disease and has now morphed into an autoimmune disease. Today on Badass, Laura shares with us the story of being ushered into the wilderness by a nameless illness that took hold of her while she was pregnant with her second child, an illness that robbed her of her most basic abilities and changed every aspect of her life. Laura, I'm so glad you could be with us today. Welcome to Badass. Thank you, Maribai. Thanks for having me. I'm just really excited to, I'm always excited to be in a room with you. So that's a bonus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto. Um, I would like to start our conversation today by having you go back to just before you got sick in 2008. 
who were you back then? What was your life like? You know, it's such a good question because I think so much of the time just having kids changes us so profoundly that we look back on the time before that and don't even remember who we were. And so that's complicated by the fact that I was pregnant when I started to notice something was wrong. And so prior to that, um, my kids are actually eight years apart. So Cora was um, in that phase where she was more of a companion than um, a responsibility. You know, she was kind of doing her own thing. She was an older elementary student. She was eight when mm -hmm. Ike was born. So um, I was, um, I mean, it's, among other things, I was happy. I was a happy person. I, um, I was, I really loved my work. I loved painting. I loved uh, working with my clients. Um, you know, the decorative painting thing was really hot then at that time before the big recession, the great recession. And, um, I was, um, I loved the physicality of it. I loved climbing scaffolds. I loved, uh, carrying ladders. I loved mixing paint. I love having paint all over me. I loved, um, all of that and working with my friends. I worked with a lot of other artists that we all kind of looked at this as our day job, right? You know, but we're really supposed to be studio artists, but we're going into these people's homes and giving them what they want on their walls. And it felt like it was appropriate at the time. And I felt strong. That's, I mean, that's the main thing. When I look back, I feel like I felt like I had a lot of strength. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, probably just from climbing, scaffolding, but yeah. you know, I had so, you know, I had some muscle and I, I had some energy and I was happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got pregnant with Isaac. I did. And I was happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. And you were in a happy relationship. I was. At the time. I was in a very happy relationship. I felt like we had everything in front of us. I was feeling very grateful to be where I was, to have, like I said, the friends that I had and the partnership that I had. And then we were going to have this beautiful child. And um, yeah. Yeah. So when did you first notice that something just wasn't feeling right? I think because I was pregnant, you know, this was confusing for me and everyone else. Um, and I had had Cora when I was 31 years old. And now I'm 39 years old. And so my doctors and my... Um, GYN and OB, you know, they're telling me, um, well, you know, you're a lot older this time around. And because I said, you know, this pregnancy is really hard. I feel horrible. And I didn't feel like this with Cora. And they kept saying, well, you know, this is a geriatric pregnancy. Oh, <laughs> I was like, are you really using that word on a 39 year old woman? Yeah. You know, who felt very strong coming into this. Right. And, um, and it just got progressively worse. We have we have some photos of me toward the end of that pregnancy later in that year in 2008. Ike was born December 26th, 2008. So that was the whole year was pregnancy of me just looking miserable. And I remember just, I couldn't go. I just had no energy. And I've always been a healthy eater. So I wasn't, this wasn't a lifestyle issue. You know, I wasn't right. having, I wasn't having trouble sleeping. I wasn't, you know, so I thought, I'm way more in touch with my body now after this, this long journey. But even then, I feel like I knew something was wrong before everyone else did. Mm, that's so interesting that you put it that way. I was reading Ross Douthat's book, The Deep Places. Okay. And he's also a Lyme survivor. And he talks about this feeling of, of understanding that mm -hmm. you've been invaded. Yep. And knowing that before the doctors can recognize it before anyone else can recognize it. And it's such a, a odd 
feeling to sit with. And I definitely yeah. remember that as well. So that that kind of feels resonant with how you describe so that So you feeling. did kind of have that same experience of being like, there's something else here. Yeah. 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 There's yeah. something inside of me. But it's very difficult to articulate, especially when you're standing and speaking to a medical professional who has like a whole chart worth of blood work that looks great to them. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and you're like, mm, no, I have a parasite. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, is it an alien? You know, I mean, that's your first. And, you know, that's kind of how you feel being pregnant anyway. So this right. was very confusing. I bet. Yeah. I bet. And But then Ike was born. Yes. And you didn't feel any better. No. And that's when I really knew because um, I had expected to bounce back. And why shouldn't I? There, th- let's, let's just be clear. 39 is not geriatric. There's nothing wrong with having a baby at the age of 39. And when you went into this with some strength and health and vitality, you should not come out of it feeling 100 years old right. and ready to expire. And that is exactly what happened. And I just kept getting worse. Moreover, Ike did not thrive. Mm. He was not well. And I knew something was wrong with my baby too. Oh, that must have been terrifying. It was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. He was small, which is not, that's not a thing in my family to have a small baby. <laughs> Um, and he just didn't get bigger. Um, and he's gigantic now. I mean, he's like, he comes from like hardy stock, this guy. Um, and he had terrible reflux, uh, which, you know, later I found out that's actually fairly common, uh, to babies born with Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And so the two of us were, we were in trouble and I knew it. And that's when I started to try to find help. Right. And I think for most of us who, realize that there's something very wrong with us. Yeah. We also think, okay, well, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go to the doctor and <laughs> I'm going to find somebody who is going to do the right test and we're going to figure it out and there's going to be treatment. You know, yep. I mean, yes, it's scary to not feel well, but I think in the very beginning, you sort of have this like all plotted out in your mind of like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, we'll figure because this out. Because in the past you've had a sinus infection or like a a planter's wart or whatever, and you've gone to the doctor and they've been like, here's exactly what we need to do. And we're going to do that. And then you're not going to have this anymore. Right. So yeah, I, I think I, I did think that. Right. And then you went to the doctor. <laughs> we, we call him Dr. Bombed and Shot At because um, I went to my doctor who I'd been seeing for things like sinus infections. And uh, I said, okay, here's what's going on. I can't, I have no quality of life. I can't get out of bed. I feel absolutely horrible. The lymph nodes in my neck are swollen all the time. I, I feel like I have an infection in my body. And he said, there's nothing wrong with your neck. You know, he examined my neck and he was like, you're fine. And then he did some blood work and stuff. And he, he came back with this pristine blood work and said, there's nothing wrong with your thyroid. There's no, nothing that would explain this. And I said, I, I have no quality of life. And he said, well, it's better than being bombed or shot at. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you just got sent home with at least you haven't been bombed or shot. I got sent home with Prozac. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That old chestnut. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I was cuckoo bananas because I had a baby and a vagina. Yeah. 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 Yes. And I was whining about not being able to do my my housework apparently. So he was going to fix me right up. Yes. Yeah. You know, and when I um, was writing my memoir, um, I 
I did do some research on how women are treated in the medical world. Interesting. And uh, the misdiagnosis of depression is extraordinarily common. Yeah. That women are misdiagnosed as either having, it's like, there's like the trifecta. It's depression, anxiety, conversion disorder. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, which all sort of has these roots in hysteria. You know, hysteria. Yeah. 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 It's a big part of my experience, and it was a big part of your experience. Yeah. And the experience of other people that I know who have been through this. Yes. Um, it's kind of, I mean, emotionally and psychologically, that's the big, that's where, I mean, I felt like he had punched me in the face. Yes. Right. Because I not only went home still sick and knew that the Prozac wasn't going to help my lymph nodes, but um, of course I didn't take it, but um, I also just felt I had been, I mean, somewhat humiliated. Yes. Yes. And it's, and then I didn't know where to go from there. Yeah. Now who's going to help me? Yeah. I mean, a word that I've come up with for that dynamic is gaslighting. Yep. You know, yep. because somebody's sitting here saying, this is your reality. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait a minute. No, no. Right. <laughs> you know, and there's nothing you can say. And especially when you're feeling very much that this is completely physical. Yeah. And I know when you were told that you had a conversion disorder, we all kind of reacted the same way to that. Being, Wait a minute. This is not someone who has, you know, unresolved trauma. This is not someone. This is like, she's a therapist. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Dude, this is not a conversion disorder. Yeah. You know? And like, you know, somebody that does yoga all the time. Yeah, and, right. You know, yeah. It's all about self-care. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, my self-care now compared to my self-care then, it makes me look like I was <laughs> eating Burger King three times a day, which I wasn't, but I thought I was like, you well, know, super healthy, but now I'm super healthy. Yeah. 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 It's a whole new level. Whole, whole new, new level. whole new paradigm. So going back to this time, so you, you're sent home. Yep. Totally not helped, right? Not helped. Not helped at all. No. In fact, I was hurt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And... So, like, where did you go from there? I kept trying. Mm-hmm. So the next, <laughs> the next thought I had was, well, I need to see a female doctor, don't I? Um, and I did that. And um, I had also spoken, I worked with a, an interior designer who I really liked, and we had a rapport. And I was telling her what was going on. And she said, oh, honey, that's just your thyroid. But she said, you know, there's this way that, you know, conventional doctors will often test and they're not quite doing it right, and it gets missed. And she said, let me tell you, here's my story. She told me her story. She had had trouble losing weight. She had had all this fatigue and headaches, and they test, someone tested her thyroid appropriately or accurately or whatever and discovered that she was hypothyroid. And she said, I took some medication, and I'm a new woman. And I thought, that's it. That's the deal. And I was delighted. I couldn't wait to go get my thyroid tested. And um, I went to a female doctor and she just didn't, I guess she just didn't do, you know, do the testing appropriately. Because again, even though I I had something much more serious going on, I was hypothyroid. Um, Because, you know, Lyme is like knocking over dominoes. Yeah. um, And that's very common with Lyme disease. It is. Absolutely. That people's thyroid gets really impacted. You'll just have a whole hormonal kind of shutdown, you know. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, I was waiting for this call with these test results. And I was like, this is it. This is it. You know, excited to have a thyroid disease. 
Yeah, <laughs> an answer. That's what happens to you. Yeah. And she called and said, uh, your thyroid tested normally. And I was like, I mean, it was just devastating, you know? So I just kept trying. Yeah. It's kind of surreal how devastating it is to get the news that you don't have a disease. Right. When you're so sick. Yeah. Right. Yes. And you're so sick and you need an answer. And again, I think going back, this is all pre-treatment, but going back to that idea that in the past, this little thing that happened to us, a skinned knee, a runny nose or whatever, it was fixable very quickly. And that's very American and privileged of us to have that um, belief, but we do. And if we've had access to healthcare, which not everyone does, but if we have had access to healthcare, we've been able to um, get treated, you know, quickly, easily, and we've, and we're cured and away we go. Yeah. So I was still like, okay, well maybe not that doctor, Yeah. but I'm going to find what's wrong with me. And it's, it's a disease and, um, we're going to cure it. Yeah. Yeah. And in the meantime, you're so sick. Yes. Yes. Tell me a little bit, cause I don't know that our, you know, not all of our listeners know, you know, what being sick with Lyme disease looks yeah. like. Like, tell me a little bit about what was happening during that time. I mean, you were so sick and you had a tiny, tiny baby. And a tiny little sick baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like vomiting across the room, like 20 feet, you know, every oh. time you picked him up. Yeah. Um. So another one of the things that I think distracted us from an accurate diagnosis for me was that um, you know, I had this whole set of symptoms that wasn't necessarily the textbook set of Lyme symptoms. Um, and I felt like I had the flu all the time, 24 hours a day, but I didn't have any joint pain. And there were a couple other things that weren't manifesting for me at that time. They eventually all kind of did, (laughs) but at that time, you know, I didn't have this joint pain. And every time I went down a Google rabbit hole of what do I have, what's going on with me? And I would just type in all my symptoms and, you know, um, Lyme disease came up multiple times, but it was like, oh, you know, you have this joint pain and, um, that's kind of the big deal. And I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I had just, the fatigue is almost impossible to describe, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I don't have to tell you. It's just debilitating. Yeah. I couldn't get out of bed. One kind of metaphor that I've hit on with it is it's like being underwater. And it's like you can sort of see everything that's going on on the surface above you, but you just can't like break through. (sighs) You know, it's just this constant sort of blanket of water on top of you. That's so accurate. And I even, I can feel that... um, in my, in my chest, almost like a, a weight because I can relate so much. There were times when I described it as swimming through jello mm-hmm. or um, I did have a feeling of being in a well mm-hmm. and I could see that it was sunny up there. I could hear my kids playing. I couldn't get out, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so emotionally, um, it's a nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because you can hear your kids playing and you can't be the one to play with them. And they'll even say things like, you never play. You're always sick. And you watch them struggling developmentally with like compassion and empathy. And you're like, oh, gosh, I sure hope they get that soon. You know, because my kids really struggled 
to understand what was happening to me and why I had abandoned them, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And in all the um, interviews I've done where I'm talking with somebody about illness or injury, it feels like there's this theme around your personal identity. Yes. And especially those like really important roles to you. Yeah. You know, the things that you hold dear, like your role as a mom. Yeah. You know, and those are so heavily impacted. That's true. I think that um, sometimes it's hard for me to decide what was the hardest out of all, uh, uh, you know, throughout the process. But I think that that, that emotional piece and not being who I thought I was, you know, when you asked initially, what, who, who was I? Um, I very quickly was not that person anymore. Yeah. I was not strong. I was not vital. I was, you know, I didn't. And, and what you have is, uh, essentially a lot of time to lie in bed and think about what you're not now. Yeah. And that makes it a lot harder. It's very isolating. Yes. And it's such a catch-22, right? Because you get diagnosed with depression. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then after <laughs> six months of lying in bed and not being able to take care of your family the way you want to and not being yourself and not being able to do the creative things that you do, you do get depressed. Yep. But then it's, <laughs> you know, then it's even harder to go and talk to a professional because right. it's like, okay, yes, yes, I am depressed. Right. Because this is really fucking depressing. Yeah. And I got depressed because I got sick. Yes. And you're still trying to tell them that you're sick. And they are saying things like, well, what about anxiety? Are you feeling? And you're like, yeah, uh-huh, that too. Yeah, I'm scared shitless. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because I still don't know if I'm just going to be dead at some point when my kids come to wake me up in the morning. Yes. You no, know, that's the thing is that the mystery illness Where's that going to go? Yeah. What's going to happen next? And I mean, in your case, bam. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was that was a unusual, actually, for Lyme disease to have it start so dramatically because mine did start with a, a total paralysis and having to be on life support. But... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it is kind of. I mean, it's so mine was special. <laughs> so mind blowing. right? Also, after that doctor had said you had a conversion disorder and then you end up with like paralyzed lungs, I was like, OK, what's she have now? Well, no, the craziest thing is that I had already been paralyzed when he told me I had oh a conversion god. disorder. Oh my god. And I'd already like I'd lost the ability to breathe and had to be on a ventilator, which like And he's like, that's in your head. Like your brain doesn't No. 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 Um and so yeah, yeah, that was batshit. That was It's so crazy. <laughs> it's so intense yeah. and crazy. But yeah. even like sometimes when the more dramatic things would happen, and I don't know if this Again, we go back to that experience of being like, okay, all right, there's some real drama. My body's doing some really weird shit. Are they going to diagnose me with something? Yeah, now? yeah. You know? Yeah, I can actually take this one to the hospital. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You get to the hospital and you're like, okay, I've arrived. You know, you used to have a, like fitness goals. Now you're like, if I could just get some nasty blood work. That'd be great. Right? Yeah. 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 But no. No. And that was your experience. I mean, it just was... It was over and over and over yeah. again yeah. that you really tried to seek help. Yes. And just were not getting it. Nope. 
And it wasn't just going to like GPs. I mean, I imagine that you were going all over the place. I went all over the place. Um, I had kind of had this notion too that, you know, I've had some really great luck with nurse practitioners and I thought, okay, I like them, you know, I'm going to just see nurse practitioners. And um, they still just weren't picking up what I was throwing down. They weren't telling me I was depressed or, you know, having female troubles, but um, they couldn't find what was wrong. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't until a friend of mine referred me to Randy Miller, who is, um, you know, holistic, functional, and um, also Lyme literate, that, I mean, that, that was one of the first things she asked me when I told, actually, this was really great. I told her what all my symptoms were. And she did that kind of whole preliminary blood work panel that everyone had been doing. So this time I was smart enough not to get my hopes up about it. And I came back to her and she said, everything was normal. And she said, but you're telling me that you're sick. So I have to dig deeper. And I mean, <laughs> I just got chills telling you that all oh, over again. Because, me too. Yeah, because I was like, oh my God, I'm telling her I'm sick and she's hearing me. Yeah. She knows she hasn't found what's wrong yet because the blood work she's looking at looks good. So there must be something she didn't test me for. And then she said, have you ever been tested for Lyme disease? And I was like, what? Wow. For a tick bite? No. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that experience of finally being seen. Oh, my gosh. Um, and she would just, I mean, just her face. She was leaning in. She was compassionate. She was like, you're, I'm going to help you. It may take me a minute, but I'm going to help you. And no one had, it felt like no one had really been willing to go the distance. They'd said, I couldn't help you. I wasn't able to help you. Yeah. You know, just keep yeah. taking those, you know, antidepressants. Mm. Yeah. Which yeah. I never did need. I was never depressed. I mean, like you said, there were moments lying in bed days on end, especially on like beautiful summer days mm -hmm. when I got pretty blue. Mm -hmm. And I was also very angry at times. Yeah. And this was like five years, right? Five years for the diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes because I I was, I mean, you know, as, as misfortunate as I was at the beginning, one thing that I was very fortunate about is that it only took me six months yeah. to get a diagnosis, mm. um, which is I, very rare. I mean, it's your story it, is much way more, more common. common. Yep. Um, and I'm just trying to imagine five years yeah. of every single day yeah. feeling so shitty. And that's at the center of it is feeling, you know, I want everyone to imagine they have the flu and how miserable that is. This is every single day of my life. Yeah. A hardcore flu um, that just knocks you on your ass. You know, you have no, you. it's working is not an option. Playing with your kids is not an option. Fixing dinner is not an option, you know. And then it's not just the doctors and um, medical professionals that are confused about this, don't know how to help you, and sometimes kind of are tempted to believe that you might be a little bit crazy and a hypochondriac. So it was my husband and his family and sometimes my friends and uh, people who just, they were lost in that limbo between knowing what to do with me and really even wondering if there was anything really wrong. Because of course I'd had 1 million blood tests that said there wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think when people feel really helpless, yeah, they, uh, you know, they sometimes 
unconsciously, you know, just to alleviate their own anxiety, yep. will come up with these theories. You yeah. Know? Well, maybe she is just really depressed and she's just not able to look at it yeah. or, you know. Yeah. Or she's tired out. You know, she worked so hard at that job and um, it was so physical and she was exposed to all these VOCs and um, she smoked cigarettes, you know, because I did smoke and, you know, there were days I had margaritas for dinner and that was all, you know. Yeah. Um, those days are gone. Um, so I think there was at least, and then for me, there was a tendency to blame myself. I was like, well, you know, I only quit smoking when I got pregnant with Ike, so... Maybe it was the cigarettes. You know? mm, yeah. um, maybe I stayed up too late and didn't get up early enough. And that's when I did start, I mean, on my own, um, changing my diet and um, really drilling down into the, the really hardcore lifestyle stuff, sleep hygiene and diet and exercise and yoga and meditation. <laughs> For lack of a better word, prayer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's like if there's anyone out there listening... Oh. oh God, I'll never forget five months in trying this autoimmune paleo diet. Yeah. <laughs> it was so insane. <laughs> yeah. I think There's I could nothing only on eat like fish and coconut. That's what I said. I was like, I'm eating celery and barnacles <laughs> at this point. Maybe a little driveway gravel. Yeah. 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 But I was also had done, you know, food tests where I was sensitive to every single thing that touched my body, which should have told me I had an autoimmune thing working up, right? Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, black pepper, I was sensitive to vanilla. That always made me laugh so hard. I was like, only me, you know, like uh -huh. I can't tolerate vanilla. That's literally like a term for right. blandness and nothingness. <laughs> and I can't, my body, it's trying to attack it. Something that should not offend <laughs> no. you. No, exactly. <laughs> Something that causes no harm ever. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's born out of that desperation. It's like, oh, desperation is a good word for it. I have to fix this. I yeah. have to, I can't live like this. Like there has right. to be an answer. And I think that's what for me felt like was never depression. Like that constant, constant desire to, to continue to find answers and to find a reason to get out of the bed in the morning mm -hmm. and make that happen for myself. And I've never, I don't know if it's just my wiring, but I've never been able to drop that. I still think that I'm going to have, a, there's going to come a time in my life when I don't have any flares or relapses and that I will just be a better version of who I was when this all started, you know? Yeah. But that's part of the resilience that's it is. hardwired into us, yeah. right? Yeah. Like we we are creatures who will just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And believing that um this is the last time I'm sick or like I I'm feeling better today, which means I'm never gonna feel sick again. You know, mm -hmm. like and maybe there were times that, that that was what actually kept me going. Yeah. You know, just getting sick again would be like a real kick in the pants, of course. But um, feeling like when I would have some short remissions initially, I would think whatever I'm doing is working. Yeah. You know, the diet is working or the earlier bedtime is working or, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. Because that feeling of powerlessness is <laughs> so uncomfortable. It is. That, and pervasive. Yeah. 
that that any anything you have to go on that makes you feel like you have some control is right. so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not just again, it's not just having control over your body, but it's having control over your what's happening to your family, what's happening to your finances and then this whole kind of medical community that you think let me let me recommend a few books to these doctors that I've read that might help them understand people like me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that people who don't have Lyme disease or, you know, don't know somebody who has Lyme disease might not understand is even getting a diagnosis of Lyme disease. This isn't like the magic bullet. No. Right? I found that out. Yeah. (laughs) Because Lyme disease is, A, it's just really, really difficult to treat, especially when it's systemic, when it's been, those bacteria have been building in your body, like for you, for five years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're, At least. you know, the type of bacteria they are, they are these little corkscrews and they tunnel into your tissues and your muscle fibers. Yep. And they like get deep in there. And so when you do courses of antibiotics, they don't get to all they of those. They don't get to them. Yeah. Or they hit them and they change and they're not a corkscrew anymore. Now they're a little round ball that is covered in biofilm that that particular antibiotic can't do anything with. Yeah. 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 It's like- They're like smart bugs. In the moments where I'm not really mad at the disease, I find it pretty oh, respect. fascinating. Yes. I'm, I'm always like, like you oh are a badass God. disease. You should have Lyme on your show. Right? <laughs> Talk about resilience. Yeah, the ultimate badass. <laughs> you can throw seven different kinds of antibiotics in me and I'm still and kicking. I'm still kicking. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you so you get this diagnosis- and I imagine that you, you know, were hopeful. And well, we have a joke in the in my family, or we used to. We've we've stopped joking about all this stuff for a while now. But um, we, when I told, I remember telling my mom, who was who's always been so supportive and just my partner throughout all of this. She's been incredible. Um, she's raised my kids. Thanks, mom. Um, she, I told her, oh, okay, okay, I saw this amazing nurse practitioner. She said she's going to test me for Lyme disease. And I had like Googled it again, you know, cause like I said, I'd seen it before, but I didn't have the joint pain. I said, well, if I have it, it's like totally treatable. No problem. Right. You know, it's like, you know, two weeks of antibiotics, I'm good. Right. Yeah. So my mom was like, oh, I'll pray for Lyme disease. And so we kept all being like, fingers crossed it's Lyme disease. And then when, we, when, um, she called to tell Randy called to tell me that, you know, I had it. Well, I actually came into her office. And she said, okay, so you have it. And she said, you were positive on all three of the tests that I gave you. And she said, I don't even have people that are like that. Yeah. So just for people who, again, aren't kind of in the Lyme world, Laura is this rare unicorn (laughs) because (laughs) there's just this impossibly high standard that the CDC has, has put out where somebody has to test positive on, I think it's the two tests, the ELISA and the Western blot. Um, However, the the ELISA is wildly unreliable. There's a study that shows that it misses 46% of Lyme (sighs) cases. And it only tests for this one bacteria, the bacteria that's associated with classic Lyme disease. I think that bacteria is called B. burgdorferi. Yeah. And so so you've got the ELISA, which it's like, I mean... (laughs) 
it is difficult yeah. to get a positive on the Elisa. And depending on the way that you're, this is similar to COVID, that could be something listeners maybe could understand the way that, um, you know, when your body mounts an immune response, you have the antibodies now for several days or months or weeks, but then later you don't. So there's all that going on too. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the positive Elisa and then you went on to the Western blot, which again, you know, when they were doing the um, vaccines for Lyme disease, they actually limited the amount of bands that um, the Western blot would show because they wanted it to be consistent with the vaccine. Oh, I didn't know that. I read that in Ross Douthat's book, uh, The Deep Places. And so, um, so they actually, I mean, there's more bands they could be looking for. Oh, for sure. But they only look for these certain ones. Right. And so again, it's like, it's a toss of a dice it for is. people if they're gonna, you know, get these well, particular bands. Another thing that's interesting to me about the Western blot is that they're saying you have to be positive on this band and this band and this band. But I know people, I know it's one person who was, did not have what the, we're calling this a CDC positive Western blot. She did not have that, but she was positive on this other band. And so I was reading, you know, the results and looking into it. And the band that she was positive for is uh, tests a protein that is found in the tail of the Lyme spirochete, the, the B. burgdorferi, however, you, uh-huh. I don't know how to say it, but it's only found there. Uh-huh. So, you know, so she has right. protein from a Lyme tail yeah. all up in she there. She has to have a spirochete in there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. they're like, but it's not CDC positive because you didn't have these positive bands, which are proteins found in their ear lobes or what, you know, I don't yeah. know what they are, but yeah, I mean, and that's a very like layperson's explanation, but, but I had a CDC positive Western blot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems so clear cut. You have Lyme yep. disease. I have Lyme disease. <laughs> You're like, okay, let's, you know, let's treat this. You got and, the CDC positive. You're, you know, yep. but- I said, can you cure me? And she said, oh, no, I can't cure you, but I can get you feeling better. And I was like, what? Wow. So she did know that. She hit me hard. She hit me as hard as the rest of them had. Now, here was someone who was listening to me, hearing me, finding out what was truly wrong with me, and then dropping that bomb on me. When I found out what was truly wrong with me, I found out that there may be no way to cure it. I was like, oh, my, I thought I was going to pass out. Right. Because right. I just, <laughs> I couldn't imagine I had something incurable. Yeah. And again, that flies in the face of what most people in Western medicine right. know about Lyme disease. And so I imagine what you were reading online was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. take two weeks of doxycycline, you'll be fine. I was always confused and I still am. And anybody is welcome to go Google this up for themselves because it's pretty bizarre as to how... You will even go to the CDC website, for example. It's a great place to start. Just couldn't be more mainstream, right? And and they're supposed to be the authority. Okay, great. So they will tell you early stage Lyme, quickly detected, is no problemo. We're going to treat this with antibiotics. Two weeks of doxycycline, you're good to go. And then it will go on to say, and this is everywhere you look, however, Lyme that's gone on longer or late stage Lyme can be dangerous and even fatal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're like, okay, so what do I do about that kind? And they're like, two weeks of doxycycline. Yeah. Okay. 
That right there is a contradiction. Mm -hmm. So wait a minute, why is it worse then? If you can treat it the same way, in the same amount of time, with the same medication. Yeah. What makes it so dangerous? Well, yeah. what those of us who have had long Lyme know is that you can't treat it with two weeks of doxycycline. That's right. a bunch of bullshit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's maddening um, because, you know, I think you and I are both very, like, rational people. You know, like... I hope so. You know, we... I mean, I know I was working in a medical setting when I got sick. <laughs> yeah. I was working as a medical social worker, um, and my brother's a doctor, and my mom's a nurse, and, like, like, I am not somebody... I mean, I do believe in, like, you know, if I can heal something by taking an herb first, you yeah, know, exactly. I'll do that. Of you course. know, and I was like that before I got sick. But, you know, I was not in any way adverse to going to the doctor if I had something that needed to be treated right. by a doctor, you right. know, and I didn't think Western medicine was quackery. There's and I, a reason we have antibiotics. Yeah. And they're for infections. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think for me, you know, I just felt like, uh, you know, this is a world that I really like feel like I know and I trust. And yet, like they're telling me these things that aren't lining up with right. my lived experience in any way. Right. And just how like confusing that yes. is, you know, because um, like I'm sure when you were first looking for info for Lyme, you were like, I'll go to the trustworthy sources. <laughs> yeah, like I'm on like WebMD. Yeah. You know? Or like I remember being like, I'm only going to look at Mayo Clinic and CDC yep. because, you know, there's just a bunch of wacky stuff out there on the Internet. Yep. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to get into a rabbit hole here with this or yeah. believe any conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, boy, mm -hmm. boy, you're not going to find what you need there. You're not. And then what you've learned, among other things, you know, aside from having to take care of yourself and advocate for yourself and all of the things that you learn how to do, you also learn how to navigate this incredibly complex community of people who have symptoms, who have been treated, who haven't. So many chats, so many forums, so many Facebook groups, so many people suffering. And then occasionally you're like, or is that person just Maybe they maybe they do have a conversion disorder because they'll be like, and the chemtrails, you know, mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, you know, I don't know. Um, but there have been so many times that I I just believed all of it. And I thought, yeah, this was, you know, created on Plum Island. It's it's warfare. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, they're trying to kill us. Yeah. You know, because they're because you just I just couldn't get anybody to help. Well, know? it just breeds such mistrust. Yes. Right. That's right. You know, when you have people just discounting your lived experience over and over right. again, you know, just you start to feel like, I don't know that I can trust anything right. that's coming out of out of this world. Yeah. And I know what I'm you know, what I have I do have this Lyme literate um medical professional trying to help me who is telling me that what the CDC is saying is completely crazy. Mm -hmm. And they just don't want to, the mainstream medicine doesn't want to acknowledge any of this because it would just, it would take big insurance down, mm -hmm. you know, because trying to deal with chronic Lyme patients would be too expensive. Yeah, yeah. And there's money tied up in vaccines mm -hmm. that are really tied to Lyme disease being um, defined a really specific That's way. That's right. And 
you know, so there's there's all these sort of weird behind the scenes. And and well, I mean, even talking about it now, I'm like, oh God, I hope we don't sound like wing nuts. You know? I know. <laughs> like, I know. But but really, I mean, it's in um in Pamela Weintraub's The Cure Unknown, she talks about it and and Ross Douthat's The Deep Places. And he's a New York Times journalist. And they all kind so, of touch on it. You um, know. I think that that's why it's important for people like you and I to sit down and have a an honest conversation about the lived experience. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I find I have in common with other Lyme sufferers and people with other chronic illnesses and autoimmune stuff is is that when you talk about that experience of being in the well or under the water, when you talk about the experience of being told you were nuts, when you talk about the experience of not being able to figure out what's wrong with you and then maybe finding out that what's wrong with you isn't something that's going to go away anytime soon, all of those things are something that we do share and that's almost become a universal language. Yeah. 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 And again, like that power of really being seen and understood yeah. when you haven't been. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to your story, so you get this diagnosis and you start treatment and Lyme treatment is hard. Uh, it's really hard. The next thing she told me after telling me that she couldn't cure me was that I was going to get a lot worse before I got better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, what? I can't believe that we were all like, fingers crossed, it's Lyme disease. Right. Because now this is looking really awful. Yeah. And that's when she um, explained to me about the Jerish-Herxheimer reaction, which is when you take antibiotics or anything really that, that kills the bacteria that's in your cells, in your muscles, in your tissues. Um, and those little dead bodies create so much toxicity that your body can't actually flush it out mm-hmm. quickly enough. Yeah. And so you feel, guess what? Like you have the flu. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm about to get the triple flu. Yeah. Kill me now. Yeah. I think, I think you know, another way that COVID's been helpful is it's introduced the word cytokines. Yes. To the, you know, general yes. public. And that's what's happening is that, you know, um, this, the treatment creates all these cytokines and the cytokines create massive inflammation. Yep. Sometimes in your brain. Yep. Which can make things real wonky. Real interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You had a lot of brain fog, didn't you? I had a lot of just brain stuff in general. Uh Tremors, um, like half of my body locking up, legs not working periodically. Right. It's total like going offline every once in a while uh, with like just kind of dropping in the kitchen and And laying on the floor. And that wasn't just the initial illness, but also you've had that kind of stuff come up during relapses too, haven't you? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the other thing, um, kind of circling back. I didn't have a lot of the brain stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody I've, I've talked to with Lyme or any tick-borne illness has been like, I can't think, I can't remember anything. And then they had a lot of like weird stuff where they'd be like, I went to raise my right hand and my left hand raised up instead, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was stuff that Isaac and I really managed to avoid somehow. And I was so grateful because for him, he was really sick until he was about six years old, seven years old. Um, I was very concerned about him developmentally, um, yeah. you know, in terms of learning and cognition and all of that. And he really sailed through it. Oh, good. The, the main thing for us was we both have migraines. Mm. 
But other than that, um, I just didn't. So I wasn't like having joint pain and brain fog. I was like, no, I just feel like I have the flu. My neck hurts, you know? Right, right. And the fatigue. And the fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Spectacular fatigue. Yeah. And bringing up Isaac again, it just, I just feel like I want to keep coming back to like thinking about like you're going through all this and Isaac was a baby when it started. So, yeah. you know, you were going through his toddler years on the bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we, yes, we have, um, we have these two little, they were those little gum erasers that um, ma- they're made into like cute little shapes. Like you'll see little sushis or, and one is a penguin and one is a pig. And uh, he named them Martin and Rose. And we played Martin and Rose a lot. And that meant that he would get in bed with me and I would raise up my knees and the blankets would make like mountains and caves and Martin and Rose would explore caves and they would, um, oh gosh, it gets me every time they would, you know, climb mountains together. And, um, I would say, Hey buddy, you want to play Martin and Rose? Because I could get him to come into the room with me and engage with me. I knew I couldn't play Frisbee. I couldn't go on a walk. I couldn't take him in his stroller, but I could play Martin and Rose. And so that's what we did. You know, you just find a way to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was hard. It is so hard. Yeah. And that really is kind of at the heart of why I'm talking to people because it's amazing this this creativity <laughs> yeah <laughs> that you had in you to like you couldn't lift your arms you couldn't get up right but you could put your you could prop your knees up and make caves yeah. <laughs> for Martin and Rose <laughs> right <laughs> yeah we still have Martin and Rose I have them in shadow boxes now um, just kind of memorialized. And I had to do a lot of stuff like that. I had to get creative with a lot of things, but I also missed a lot of things. Yeah. I missed a lot of Cora softball games. Yeah. And um, some really, I think, formative fun times with her that, um, you know, we were supposed to go to the mall and like get in the photo booth together. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so then my kids had to develop extra resilience as well, which is okay. It's all right. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm lear- I've learned that if nothing else, this isn't going to get easier, but we are going to get stronger. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're kind of got through Ike being really little. Yeah. And then you started treatment. Yep. Better before, you know, or worse before you get better. So I asked her, you know, she, Randy Miller gave me the test. She gave me the news. She told me about the Herxheimer reaction and then she, I said, hey, can you, can you pass this? Does this cross the placenta? Is my baby sick? And she said, oh, yeah, it can. And if it doesn't cross the placenta, you can, you know, transmit it through breast milk. And I was like, oh, I said, we have to test Ike. And um, the first, when she tested me, the first thing she did before she went with the full-blown Lyme testing was she said, let's look at your CD50, what is it, CD57? Yeah. I don't know that the one. The CD57, it's very similar to, um, I think they give the CD58 to people who they suspect might have HIV. And it's basically testing a subset of killer T cells in your immune system. If they're suppressed, then it's very, she said, you know, we'll consider Lyme if, if that's suppressed. So I think you want to have those numbers around 200. She said anything under 200, we consider Lyme. Mine was 26. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Isaac's was six. 
Oh my gosh. And the nurse so called me crying. Like almost no he was immune so system. Sick. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And we didn't even know because he was pre-verbal for a lot of this. And then when he did get, so he was, you know, walking and talking. Um, he had always been sick. So he didn't know that he was. He just thought, I guess this is life, man. I just feel like shit all the time. But we started to, after they diagnosed me, I mean, we felt like jerks for missing this. But we realized, you know, you'd like let him go out and play in the backyard. And then you'd look out there and he'd just be laying in the grass. And I was like, he's such a dreamer, you know. But no, he was like exhausted. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, you as a like walking, talking, articulate adult couldn't get anybody no. to help you. So I don't know. No, I and I was lying in the grass wanna... myself, you know, so yeah. I was sort of like, I don't know. So then when we realized that he was sick, um, that's when the craziness really ensued, because that's when we both had to be treated. And and it is hard. Yeah. The, the treatment is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And um somewhat experimental, for lack of a better term. Right. I mean, this is one of the real problems with the way that the testing has failed us. Yep. Because then we are not being researched. Right. You have to be CDC positive to be in any of these studies. And so, you know, people like um, me, I, you know, many people, yeah. you know, didn't actually hit that mark. And so there are there's so many Lyme patients that aren't being researched. Yeah. Uh, so much of this is just kind of going on in the shadows. Yeah. And so the Lyme doctors are kind of going on, like, really. They're doing the best they <laughs> you can. You know, anecdotal experience yeah. in a way, because there just isn't a lot of of research to That's go right. on for um, long-term treatment of Lyme disease. And it doesn't help that there is the kind of raging controversy and there is this battle between the Lyme litter MDs and then the more conventional MDs who are saying, you need two weeks of antibiotics and the Lyme litter MDs saying, I don't know if they're sort of overcompensating. I mean, I think now they're kind of backtracking a little bit, but Ike and I, um, to make a long story short, we're, we're treated with antibiotics, heavy, massive, massive doses three different antibiotics every single day. Mm -hmm. We would change them up every six weeks. This is the idea being that we're trying to uh, keep the Lyme from evading treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and that was for two years for both of us, every mm -hmm. single day, three different antibiotics. I always tell people, you know, when your doctor's like, oh, you've got a real gnarly, you know, sore throat here or sinus infection, I'm going to hit you with a Z-pack. And you're like, oh, a Z-pack. I took a Z-pack every I was taking azithromycin every single day for two years with two other antibiotics on top of it. Yeah. Sometimes it was Plaquenil um, to treat the um, bacteria that act more like malaria. Sometimes I took heartworm medication. I took everything you can think. Of. I drank borax at one point. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's gross, by the way. <laughs> and it irks the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much of it that's so gross. I know. Oh, God. All the tinctures. Oh, oh. so many tinctures. Oh. oh. And then they have this element that's like magical too, where you have to shake them a certain way or their energy like dissipates. And you're like, I don't know. Okay. You right. Know? So you're yeah. like, you're so sick. 
Yeah. And you're dealing with the herx, which is like massive inflammation. So you're like, you're really sick and you're in pain and maybe you're having like weird neurological stuff happening. And then you have to like take this bizarre regimen of herbs and medication that you can only take at certain times. Yes. And some you yes. can take with food, but some you can't. <laughs> right. And and then two hours later, two more drops, but away from iron. Right. You can't have this one with vitamin C. I mean, I've taken so many photos of just like tinctures and pills spread out, you know, um, handfuls and handfuls of supplements. Yes. None of this is covered by insurance. That's something we haven't even touched on. None of it. None of it. So much money. We spent, yeah. so, we spent all of our money. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. We didn't go on vacation. We didn't eat out. We didn't, um, we didn't have anyone over. We didn't buy any clothes. I mean, we could just barely make it. Yeah. And we just kept, we kept thinking we would throw everything we had at it and I would get better and then I could go back to work. Yeah. And for many families, you know, this is, they're doing this while one of the primary breadwinners is down. Yep. Right? Yes. Um, yeah, because when when my uh, ex-husband and I got together, we were really um, in kind of an equal partnership financially and otherwise, and it felt great. And we, we really had everything we needed until I got sick. And then we didn't have anything at all, except a lot of supplements yeah. <laughs> and tinctures. Yeah. And it's interesting that you and I both got divorced as yeah. I mean, I would say a direct result of this Absolutely. illness. Yep. You know, for me, the the stress of it kicked my husband into psychosis, which is again, like, why are my stories so freaking dramatic? <laughs> oh my God. I know it is really dramatic. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> he went way more dramatic than my ex. <laughs> 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 but <laughs> you also had a, like a similar experience of like the stress yes. just drove a wedge between you and it your, really did and, and we your... couldn't um somehow we lost the ability to communicate with each other if we ever had it right I don't know um about how it was affecting us emotionally individually and as a couple and um one thing that happens for me often when I look back on that relationship is that I cannot blame him for being, you know, angry and feeling abandoned. And um, I always think that ultimately what happened for him was that he was like, I did not sign up for like I had this healthy, strong, vital woman that I got involved with. We were going to have a baby and then she got sick and had a sick baby and I have to pay for all of this stuff and I can't take care of myself and I can't, you know, and um, who can blame him? for struggling. It was really hard. It was really hard. There's just so much grief. So much grief. You know? Yeah. And I think it's hard sometimes for the partner to express it. Yeah. You know, but they feel selfish for saying this is hard for me. Um, I think caretakers, caretakers, here's, here's what's really true. Caretakers need support. Mm -hmm. We weren't actually in a place where we had a lot of resources. Um, even free ones, um, based on like where we lived and kind of what was going on at the time, just logistically. And he needed more support as a caretaker than he got. And, um, I think he just didn't know how to articulate that he was feeling all of these things because he didn't want me to be sick. And then also having to deal with that, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was complicated. It was yeah. really complicated. And, um, that was one of the harder things too. I mean, you, then you have, so, okay, what do we have here? We got, we, we feel like shit. You have doctors telling you you're nuts. Your marriage is falling apart. You have no money. 
You have no resources and no one that you know and love really knows how to support you. Mm-hmm. You know, how to be there for you for any of this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Again, my mom just like maybe didn't know how, but she just jumped in there anyway. She just climbed down into the well with me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I did. I was very lucky Yeah. to have her and my dad, you know, there for me. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for being that person in my life who really understood when I went through it. I I went through it after you. Yeah, and- which, I mean, that's, I was so grateful that I was able to be there when you needed someone to talk to about it who yeah. had been through it because it makes all the difference. Oh, all the difference. Yeah. 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 You're more than welcome for that. <laughs> so... One thing that we haven't even really gotten to yet in your story, which is a, a bit of a twist yep. in these these tales of Lyme disease, um, uh, is that, you know, sort of over the course of time, I mean, you you were really sick for a long time after you started treatment. Yep. It was like nothing it didn't was help. working. Nothing helped me. And um, so it was like years and years. If you, you were first sick in 2008, yep. right? So it was like 10 years. Yeah, almost a decade. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That you were still like largely in bed, yep. having debilitating migraines, you know. Yes, the migraines got so bad. I was, I didn't know whether they were coming or going. And at one point I was at my neurologist and she said, how many migraine days per month are you having? And I said, 30. Oh, <laughs> yeah. dude. It wasn't an exaggeration. I was like, so I wear sunglasses in the house. You know, um, and I had vertigo, terrible vertigo with the migraines. So I couldn't, you know, there were times when I would stand up and just, you know, the whole room would spin. I couldn't drive for a while. I remember my daughter needed to be picked up and taken back and forth to softball practice. And I was like, I can't get in the car. Mm-hmm. I'll kill us both. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, what was your question? Oh, well, my question <laughs> was going to be like, you know, you have gotten to a much better place with your health. So how how did that happen? Like, what did you figure out finally after yeah. 10 years? And I know you were looking high and, high low, and low for that whole yeah. time. And I really did have, I want to say, I really did have a lot of um, doctors that helped me. Um, I We eventually saw a doctor in Colorado and she would do video with us. And her name is uh, Jennifer Letelier-Smith. And she's incredible. She's incredible. And she cured Isaac. She had some very unconventional methods. Um, She actually worked with magnets with him. Wow. Yeah. And um, we were like, whatever. I mean, at that point, I mean, I was doing anything that anyone told me to do. I was drinking borax, you know. So, like, I did it. I at one point had my blood taken out, ozonated, and put back in. Oh, wow. And none of us, like, that was, you know, I don't know, $900. Right. Everything is (sighs) just so much money. Yeah. So she was able to help Ike. And then she and I worked really closely together. And we developed a real connection with each other. And I felt like I was in such good hands. She's incredibly intuitive. And she allowed me to say things like, well, what about this? And, you know, then she would kind of go chasing after the thing for me and really... I mean, worked with me in a way that no one had. She couldn't help me all the way. I would get better. I would relapse again. I would get better. I would relapse again. And she said she had really only ever seen that happen with people who had had (laughs) too much antibiotic therapy. Uh And that's, um, you know, I don't know if we've even hit that yet or touched on that, but that's 
we have our Lyme litter doctors who are like, okay, well, we know two weeks of doxycycline doesn't work. So let's just keep you on antibiotics until you feel better. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember reading that Amy Tan had taken nine years of antibiotics. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then you find someone more like Jennifer who is very holistic and uses only herbals and doesn't do any pharmaceutical antibiotics. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. The antibiotics are causing a lot of the problems. Yeah. Which brings me to what happened to me in um, summer of 2019. Um, So now it's been almost 10 years. Um, And I was pursuing my third disability case because I kept getting denied. Um, And, but I was still not, I'm still not, even now still couldn't work a full-time job. I don't, I'm not well as much as I need to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was pursuing this and I realized that based on everything else that I've been, that they kept denying me. It's basically just saying, you know, you don't have anything that we think is an illness. And I thought I need to see a rheumatologist because what a rheumatologist is going to do is tell me that I have lupus and I'll chuck their medications in the trash and I'll get my disability and away we'll go, right? Mm-hmm. By now, I had really stopped pursuing Lyme treatment because I felt like I was at the end of the road after I worked with Dr. Latelier Smith and she wasn't really able to do anything with me. Yeah, five years. Yeah. That's a long time. It's a long time. So yeah. I had just kind of, in 2016, I think I stopped being treated for Lyme. So... um I went to this rheumatologist. I did ask my functional primary care physician, who I love, if um, she had a recommendation. And she said, you know, she kind of told me what I'd already heard about rheumatologists, which is, for the most part, they're kind of like very conservative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not, they don't have the best reputation, especially in the Lyme community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, do you know of anybody? And she said, there's one that I would, she said, she's kind of does more functional stuff. And she said, but she has a long waiting list got on her waiting list. And when I went to see her, fully expecting to be diagnosed with, you know, lupus, RA, whatever, that did happen. (laughs) But she had a very compelling argument for how it happened, which is that I was overtreated with antibiotics, which destroyed my gut biome slash my immune system Mm -hmm. and left me wide open for autoimmune disease. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so now I've been told I have lupus. (laughs) We've all Googled that one before, right? So I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I was crying. I was, again, it felt like being told, no, I can't cure you, you know? Yeah. I was like, oh my God, here I go again. And I really had to digest this. Mm -hmm. She had prescribed Plaquenil, which is the first line of defense, right? And she also diagnosed me with rheumatoid arthritis. So RA and lupus, and they go hand in hand quite often. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting because I do have all the symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Or a lot of them. She kept saying, you know, hair loss is a big lupus thing. Migraines are a big lupus thing. This is, you know, interstitial cystitis is a big lupus, you know, all of these things. I was like, okay, I'm listening. And she gave me the Plaquenil and I was like, no, not touching it. And then another friend of mine who has been diagnosed with like Lyme, lupus, RA, cancer, all this other stuff, she said, why don't you just take it and see what happens? Mm -hmm. She was like, you can stop if you don't like it, you know? Right. And I was like, huh, it's an idea. And I did. And I regained a lot of function when I started taking Plaquenil. It was better than borax, huh? Uh, Way better (laughs) than Or any detergent that I had tried. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she, um, I 
you know, I always had this like vague guilt slash, you know, suspicion about taking, you know, a daily pharmaceutical on top of all the migraine stuff. Mm -hmm. Cause that's the other thing is that I've always been treating migraines with like heavy duty stuff. Right. Right. And, um, but when I went from being 85% bedridden to being 85% functional and only in bed, you know, the other 15% of the time, I was like, oh, we're onto something here. That's huge. And I've been like, ever since I've been like, well, I, what I have is lupus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, and you and I have talked about this many times and yeah. it's very, it's kind of a, a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Did the lupus cause me to be more susceptible? Did I already have it? Was I kind of like just sitting there with autoimmune stuff percolating, got bitten by a tick, and then all of this kind of cascaded, you know, or did this really happen where I got bitten by a tick and then I ha had this overtreatment with antibiotics, which caused me to develop autoimmune disease? I have finally co started calling it lipus and we don't know what it is, you know, and, and doesn't matter what we call it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I like lipus. Lipus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there is just this new, you know, massive wave of research about the gut. Yep. Just in the last five years. Yeah. And it really is kind of holding up that a lot of our immune system really is in our gut. Yep. And um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that the Lyme community is really grappling with right now. Yeah. It's like, what do we do with this new piece of information? Because antibiotics has always been our our answer, our line of defense. And for some people, it really works. It you does. Know? And I know so many people who have gotten better with antibiotic therapy in, in varying degrees and uh, time periods and all of that. And I don't, I still don't know why I've been such a tough case. You mm -hmm. know, yeah. um, that's kind of my karmic thing, right? I'm just like a tough case. I'm yeah. like a medical mystery. But um, I mean, that my sense of it, and I, I had read an op-ed from a Harvard medical um, faculty member that kind of said the same thing. It's like, you know, there are all these pieces of information, but they're in these um, worlds that just don't talk to each other. That's right. And there's probably somewhere in the middle yeah, some real answers. Yes. But we have to start talking. We do. And we have to stop also saying, because they believe this, I'm going to believe this the other way even harder. Yeah. And that is where I feel like I got, um, I don't want to say mistreated, but it's where maybe what, how I was treated for Lyme was not the most appropriate way to treat me, given that maybe I already had some of this other stuff going on or whatever. And then, you know, again, we've talked about this too, but then you go like way back to like complex developmental trauma and um, exposure to environmental toxins. And I've got all that stuff in spades, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we need people, definitely, we need like a team mm -hmm. that can address, I think we could probably put it all into the box of autoimmunity because that's how eventually your immune system starts acting. Mm -hmm. And that's what was happening when I was sick with the quote Lyme, right? Was that I had the, like my body was like attacking black pepper or, yeah. you know, wouldn't let me eat an apple without giving me massive inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, so there are clues there mm -hmm. to how to treat Lyme or vice versa. You know, there were clues in Lyme that I think helped helped me figure out how to 
you know, treat myself. Because that's the other thing. I take Plaquenil now. Um, but I also, um, I'm just really, really careful about the way that I live mm-hmm. and treat myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something that I think is interesting about coming through this whole experience of, you know, having prolonged illness that really changes things for you is that when you kind of start to emerge on the other side, you are so um, attentive to yourself and to your health and to your happiness. Yeah. And, um, you know, my daughter (laughs) said this thing to me one time that really stuck with me. She said, mom, you're both the healthiest and the unhealthiest person that I know. Yes. <laughs> I sometimes think that about myself. I said yeah. something to Ike the other day, like, well, you know, I'm always super healthy. And then I was like, I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not well all the time, but I, <laughs> we were talking about the way that I was, um, cause I'll make desserts and they're like, is this healthy? You know, is this a healthy dessert? Right. They sometimes won't eat my healthy dessert, but, um, yeah, because yeah. I, I see you now, and it's like when you're vital, you're really vital. Yeah, and more than I think I ever was. Yeah, yes. and really listening to your intuitive wisdom, and really doing the things that feel so germane to you. Yes, and that I I think that's one of the gifts of this um, this illness, this journey for me is, I mean, that is that is a big one right there. Is that. Um, I used to fantasize about being somebody who took better care of myself, right? I mean, I think we all have those goals or ideas um, about what we would like to do, how much we'd like to exercise or chop vegetables or whatever. But um, it became life or death. Yeah. And there's a way that I'm grateful for that because I don't, I don't, I don't get to just drink margaritas for dinner anymore. And now I also notice the slightest change in, in this kind of like energy that I have. And, um, I know, I know now when something's wrong, I mean, boom, it's wrong. And I'm going to advocate for myself. I'm going to get this taken care of. And, um, I am in remission a lot. You know, there was a period of time when this all started that I hadn't been in remission longer than, you know, 24 hours. And then it was three days. And then it was like, but it, you know, for years and years, I had not had more than a week's remission. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they could be even more devastating just because you got a taste of what it might be like to function a little bit. And, oh, so yeah, much. So then you make plans. And I mean, now I I don't really still get invitations to things because I've like been lost to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I've gotten accustomed to that kind of, but now I'm starting to kind of put myself back out into the world and um, engage with other people and... Um, try not to just stay in isolation mm-hmm. because I think, cause now I can say, well, I think Friday would work. And then Friday sometimes does work and it didn't used to, you know? Yeah. I had that thought even when we scheduled this interview, like yeah. three years ago, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, if we scheduled something a week out that either I, one you of know, us, yeah, that we, could <laughs> we really might not be able on. to make it. Yeah. yeah. But you know, today we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll be able to drive back home and and still be all right, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a real blessing. It is, and the and the the real blessing is in knowing what you can do mm-hmm. and a- accepting it and acknowledging it, and then kind of working within that space. And and it's still a struggle for me. I still go too hard. 
I just, I have two speeds, fast, stop. And this is, this has taught me how to live in that in between where I don't get to go fast, but I don't have to stop. You yeah. know, I can maybe do a little today. That's yeah. just really hard. Um, that's been hard, but, uh, but I feel better. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting for me being a therapist for people with Lyme disease because I feel like there's this sort of process we go through and phase one is like me just needing to say again and again, like, you have real limitations. Uh-huh. Yep. You know, yep. just trying to help somebody accept, like, they have real limitations. Yes. Like, and that might mean one day that they can't even get out of bed. Right. And it might mean that on another day, they really have to limit work to just two hours. Yep. Um, but then once we sort of get to acceptance of that, then we can start kind of doing the work of, okay, within those limitations, what can you do? Right. And that's where it gets really exciting. And it's empowering. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I, I love hearing that from you about that kind of phase one piece, because what you're doing is undoing a lot of this gaslighting that's happened to us. Um, and it's another reason that I always found when I was able to speak with you or my friend Emily or someone else who has had to deal with these same struggles, it being able to connect and and see what they're going through and then be like, that's me. That's what I'm going through too. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's always easier for me to have compassion for, your, oh, well, Mirabai can't get out of bed today. Yeah, I know how hard that must be with the kids and I know how hard that must be, you know. And then to kind of go, hey, hello. Yeah. That's your life too, honey. You know, and it's okay that it it sucks. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. And you're not crazy for thinking that you can't do much more than two hours today or whatever. Yeah. Much earlier in the conversation when you, you know, said, you know, what the doctor said to me actually caused harm. Mm-hmm. That really was resonant for me um, because that you know, that misdiagnosis of conversion disorder, it felt like it had a ripple effect for years. Yes. Where I would be really, I mean, like really legitimately experiencing something, but questioning, am I really, am I just blowing this out? Maybe I'm just really anxious, you know? (laughs) Or maybe maybe I have um, almost embraced this identity of a sick person and I'm not ready to step outside of that. Like yeah. it's scary. The idea, if I were to get completely well tomorrow, what would my life look like? Yeah. There were times when I was really sick in the middle of Ike being sick and my marriage kind of disintegrating where I did have, I did wonder, what if I got well tomorrow and I would suddenly feel just super exhausted? I'd be like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't handle what it would be like to be well tomorrow because that would be so, I have so many responsibilities. And mm-hmm. right now I'm just laying in this bed and everyone's like, well, she might die. You know, there were times when it just felt like that was all I could, you know, all I could even think about emotionally was just still being sick because I had just gotten, I had worn a groove there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that is a hard thing about Lyme is that it's so changeable. Yeah. And so we just don't know what each day is going to look like. And it's really hard for us to not have any certainty. Yeah. So I do think sometimes we sort of like, we if we just sort of like live in the sick, yeah, you know, yeah. then you know we don't have to be making those yes. uh, modulations all the time. Yeah, and um, it helped a lot to accept that and to live in the sick, as as you said, um, because 
so much of the time, the idea of me struggling against it just seemed to be in, indistinguishable from the idea that I was crazy and needed to be sick, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like the struggle kind of kept me in this space of, you know, like not accepting that I was sick kind of made me believe that I I wasn't. And it was something I was kind of like just making up, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's a real like kind of roundabout. I know that's hard to articulate, but. Yeah. But that it's the, the mind game yeah. that, that goes with it yeah. can be just as difficult to cope with as what's going on with your body. And then when you do have your loved ones showing some very natural frustration or feelings of missing out because you're the one that's supposed to be driving the car or whatever and you're lying in the bed. Um, as much as they needed the space to be able to do that, it's really hard for me because I was like, and they think I'm crazy too. And they think I'm a hypochondriac and they think I just want to lay in a bed. Yeah. Yeah. And it just all comes with this side dish of guilt. <laughs> it does. a big old heaping helping. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, to save Kevin from having to do ridiculous amounts of editing, <laughs> we should probably wrap things up. Kevin's such a good sport. I know. Mirabai and I could talk for like years straight as you probably. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Laura, it really has been amazing to have you on. And, you know, you've been such a piece of my support system over the years. And I'm just glad that I get the opportunity to kind of share with the world um, what a badass you are. Oh, thank you so much. And um, just being your friend has made me feel like more of a badass. You know what I mean? Because I'm just so impressed with like your journey and what it's brought you to and that you're doing all of these things. And I think they're, they're helping people, but they're healing you and they're healing me too. I mean, it just, it's you being resilient and that's, a piece of my resilience. Yeah, we're in it together. For sure. I love you. I love you too. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered a lot of his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records, for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band, Rodeola, for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the badass team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. 